Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. All right, everybody, welcome to the Almost Sideways podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Once again, I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Uh, along with me are my co-hosts, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz, coming to you from Oregon, Washington, and Kansas, respectively. We're going to start off our podcast with something that it's been a little while since we've done it. Todd, I'm going to go to you first. Give me your 30-second movie review. All right, yesterday I watched this movie called I'll See You in My Dreams. It's, it was from 2015. It's directed by Brett Haley, who also directed last year's Hearts Beat Loud. And it's actually really good. It's brought, Blythe Danner plays this, like, widow who uh, has a relationship starting with uh, the pool boy, played by Martin Starr, and this old golf pro, played by Sam Elliott. And it sounds corny, but it's not. It's actually really endearing and really uh, heartfelt. And uh, it was an awesome movie. It's my number 13 of 2015. Very nice. Very nice. I saw Mark. that movie I, I saw that movie in a theater. Uh, I would agree with you, Todd. It's it's a really underrated movie. Blythe Tanner is awesome in it, and Sam Elliott should have gotten an Oscar nomination for that, along with *The Star Is Born*. And Martin, I think both of them should have gotten nominated. And Martin Star is a pool boy, really? Yeah. <laughs> he kind of he kind of has a, a it's a little bit of like a, a milf type or, or, or gilf maybe he, he's into. I mean, they they sort of maybe have a little bit of thing. Okay. All right. There's a bit of attraction there. Nice. All right. Well, and Zach Squibb is in it. Well, that oh, she yeah. always well, makes everything she, better. She's got this cadre of old ladies that you know get high. It's uh, that's a, pr- yeah. a pretty funny scene. Rio Pearlman, Rio Pearlman, place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Zach, how about your thirty-second movie review? Okay, uh, my thirty-second movie review is a movie that was just released this weekend. Even though Todd had never heard of it when I told him about it, it's called Little Woods, and it's uh, it stars Tessa Thompson and Lily James. So that's a big cast uh, or big names. And basically, the way I described it to Todd was uh, widows meets winter's bone. It's about these two sisters in North Dakota who are struggling kind of through the opioid crisis, and uh, you know things are getting really tight. And so uh, Tessa Thompson, who's the main character, has to kind of resort to going back to selling drugs even though she's about to end her probation um she also has to engage in crossing the border and so um it's a pretty good movie pretty dark um you know kind of gritty realistic definitely in the same vein as winner's bone um tessa thompson lily james are really good in it it's a pretty cool movie worth checking out uh if you get a chance i don't think it's an oscar contender really but uh it's pretty pretty entertaining all right how many stars do you give it Solid three star movie would have been maybe a three and a half star movie if it was if the screenplay was a little tightened, but but two very good performances. All right, well now my thirty second review. Uh, I had uh, this is probably about a week and a half ago. I watched a new Netflix film, The Highway, new Netflix film, The Highwaymen, uh, starring Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson. They play a couple of retired Texas Rangers, uh, based on a true story of them hunting down Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, it is, um, it's a fun watch. Uh, it, it's one of the first times in about 20 years that I didn't hate Kevin Costner in a role. Um, Ouch. and yeah, and, and as I'm watching it, I thought, you know, it, it's, it's good, but there's nothing really spectacular going on. And then at the end, I realized it was directed by John Lee Hancock, who is kind of known for directing interesting stories, but unspectacularly. 
and I'd say this is right around the same thing. It was, like I said, interesting to watch, interesting characters, um, but nothing really spectacular. I'm giving it two and a half stars, um, and it's easy to find if you want to check it out. Yeah, I thought it was kind of boring, but I don't know. I give it two stars. Just out of curiosity, Todd, how many Woody Harrelson movies have you given thumbs down to? Uh, not a lot. Yeah, he <laughs> was one. Know, he was one of your like most bankable guys for a while there. Yeah. Well, he yeah, and it's not. It's definitely not his movie. He uh, he definitely follows Costner's lead. I think that's why he goes a little awry. Even though Costner does a decent job in this. It, it's a role that actually fits him quite well. I can't think of that many things that Kevin Costner has even done in the last 10 years. Uh, Mr. Brooks? Well, no, that was, that was 12, 13 years ago. That was like... Draft three. Day. Draft, Draft Day. Day. Yeah. yeah he, and, and he, of course, he... the best part of Molly's Game. Oh, that's true. Yeah, he was <laughs> in Molly's true. Game. Molly's Game. Wasn't he in the Hatfields and McCoy mo- movie that was on like the History Channel? Maybe I'm. Oh, that, that sounds. Out. That was that probably sounds around familiar. ten years ago. That was something that I watched at my father-in-law's house because there was nothing. Isn't else he on the main it. character in that Yellowstone show? Yeah, he's in Yellowstone. Hidden Figures. He was in. Show. Oh, that's right. Hidden Figures. I mean, the Hidden Figures, Molly's Game. That's like now his roles, right? This kind of supporting, mm-hmm. like fatherly, avuncular figure. He he was uh, Clark Kent's dad in the in Man of Steel. He's now just everyone's dad. Pretty much. Pretty much. All right. Well. Uh, that that is our, our, our little opening uh, reviews there for you. But now let's get to the real uh, opening segment. Uh, Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking a mix of uh, whiskey and orange vanilla Coke. So <laughs> it's pretty good. That yeah, actually I've... sounds pretty disgusting. I know it kind of does, but it's not. <laughs> I uh, I had it with rum. Uh, and that was pretty good, but I decided I'd try the, try the whiskey and coke. Well, was thing. it was but it one s- of those that after March Madness you just had to try orange vanilla coke? This, I was going to say yes. the exact same thing, Terry. <laughs> good yeah, I think they uh, might have had a commercial or a million for it. <laughs> At least one every commercial break in every game. For Don't the give up on love, Francis. <laughs> those are the best. Those are the best. Uh, all right, well, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm drinking an old reliable, uh, the 7.99 Costco Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, which apparently gets a 90 on the Costco on Costco's own wine score. I wonder what would get a 100, but um, it gets a pretty high score and it gets a 100 from me too. Oh, very nice, very nice. So, so we're going right on par here. Todd has a mixed drink. Uh, Zach has uh, Costco wine, and I have a a quality craft brew. I am coming with um, out of Golden Valley Brewery in McMinnville, Oregon. This is the Shehalem Mountain IPA. So it's it's a full pint bottle I've got here that I'm going to enjoy as we uh, as we discuss. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a pretty good, just pretty solid solid beer here. So do you ever, Terry, do you ever feel like Bill Murray in Lost in Translation? Like you're like for for a good time all around, make it a Centauri time. Oh, well, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I don't know. It's it's somewhere between that and Jack of just like, I don't know, tastes pretty good to me. <laughs> so, I mean. You make a good spokesperson, that's all I'm saying. 
Oh, okay. You okay, should, well, that's you good. should consider it in Japan. Yes, yes. May, uh, especially in Japan. I'm, I'm sure that's that's just the hotbed of craft brew. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, the, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this podcast. Uh, make sure that you find us on iTunes. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, make sure that uh, you find us at almostsideways.com. On Facebook at Almost Sideways. Uh, find us uh, on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at uh, at Almost Side Terry. Uh, Zach is ProZach36. I got that right, right, Zach? Yep. Yep. Okay. And and Todd is not on Twitter, but you can find him on Facebook. I uh, bet he has a Twitter burner account. I bet he's like Kevin Durant. He's just trolling I, people. Wants to keep it on the down low. I think you can still find Todd on MySpace, actually. I. I don't know. And, <laughs> and AOL Instant Messenger, too. Yes, know. yes, there you go, there you go. All right, well, let's get into into our, our main movie reviews uh, for today. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made, you gotta see it. Movie reviews! And we're gonna do something a little different. We are we are sitting here on uh, on the weekend before... Um, what's probably going to be one of, if not the biggest blockbuster movie weekend of the year with Avengers Endgame coming out next week. And so not much is in theaters as everyone's kind of prepping for this, this, uh, this mega hit to come out or expected mega hit. And so we decided to do something a little different. We're going to do some retro reviews and celebrating one of our favorite actors, of all time. So, uh, Todd, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Okay, uh, so, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, a little over five years ago, uh, tragically died, and so we decided to pay tribute to him by reviewing movies of his that we have not seen. Or at least that, yeah, we each will review a movie that we personally have not seen of his. Yeah, and, and, uh, for me it wasn't that hard to find some because I'm I haven't gone through his filmography too much, but Todd, I, you said it was really hard to get through uh, to find something that you hadn't seen of his. Yeah, I had to go back uh, over 20 years to find one. So, All right, so th- this should be fun, and it, it'll be a, a great tribute to an amazing actor that was uh, gone too soon, That um, yeah, for, and he's been gone for five years, so, uh, so this is, it'll be a good tribute to him. Zach, I'm going to start with you. Tell us, uh, tell us what you're reviewing. So, uh, like Todd, I, I kind of had to go through... I, I mean, his, his IMDb uh, resume is amazing, you know, uh, because you could go back to, like, the 90s when he was doing, like, bit roles, when he was known as Philip S. Hoffman or Philip Hoffman or Phil Hoffman. Um, he was in such classics, 90s classics, as Leap of Faith and Scent of a Woman, neither of which I've seen, actually. And uh, when a man loves a woman, and my favorite role from the '90s of his is uh, Twister, where he plays uh, Dusty. Dusty's a man. Um, but uh, the the movie I op- I opted for though is the one in, uh, throughout that whole resume. One thing that kind of sticks out, which is surprising, is that he only directed one movie, and that is the movie that I chose because I had never seen it. And that movie is from 2010, and it is a movie called Jack Goes Boating. And I remember the name when it came out. 
Um, I never really registered with me that he had directed it. Uh, the movie is based on a off-Broadway play that he had been in, and it's really sort of a four-person type ensemble cast. And three of the four people play their character. Three of the four people in this film were originated the roles in the off-Broadway performance. Uh, only Amy Ryan was not in the original performance. And it tells the story of this limo driver who's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's it's it's, sort of, it's really kind of a classic Philip Seymour Hoffman type performance. He's basically a loser. Um, he uh, really has not a lot of aspirations in life, and he has a lot of social anxiety. And uh, he he's really only friends with uh, this couple. Um, one the the husband of uh, the husband of which is uh, he, he works at the limo agency with him, and he's played by John Ortiz, and the the wife is played by Daphne Rubin Vega. And the movie is just kind of about how they set him up uh, on this kind of blind date with uh, this character Connie, played by Amy Ryan. And um, contrary to what you might think, the title is they don't really go boating in the movie um, until the end. Spoiler alert, I guess. Uh, but it's more about how he just kind of makes these awkward overtures toward Amy Ryan's character, who, if you can believe it or not, is even more awkward than he is. Um, she, they, she, like, has this very long monologue about how her dad was, like, in a stroke or in a coma, and um, and then when he returned from his coma, he died, like, falling down or something. And I don't know, it's it's just like this... The movie's very stage-bound, you know? It feels very much uh, lifted directly from the, the play... Uh, that I didn't really have too much familiarity with. Um, Hoffman's directing is pretty interesting. Uh, there are some kind of like interesting visual mo- motifs in the movie, particularly when he's given swimming lessons by the John Ortiz character. And he kind of does like the Spike Lee thing a little bit where like they do, he does sort of like a, a zoom in sort of, and then there's like almost like a superimposed background on it that's moving around, which is kind of cool, I guess, a little trippy. Um, overall though, I'd have to say this is a pretty disappointing film. Um, it didn't have a huge release when it came out and it's in the 60s on uh, the Rotten Tomatoes. Score. It didn't get overwhelming reviews by critics, and I can un- kind of understand why. It's sort of slow moving. It's kind of hard to get into. Sometimes the characters act in ways that are sort of unbelievable. Um, there are some charming moments in the movie, and uh, the climax of the movie, I, I love th- this climax. The climax, literally, of the movie is when Philip Seymour Hoffman burns the dinner that he is preparing for all of his friends. I mean, literally, that's like the most important thing in the movie, um, and he leaves it in the oven too long. And so anytime you get a movie like that where that's the climax, I mean, it's one of two things. Either it's like a quirky, really funny movie, or there's nothing else really in the story that's worth uh, you know following, or is that exciting? And it's sort of the latter for this movie, unfortunately. Um, you know, the, the whole, like, two couples dynamic recalls Sideways a little bit, but this is really pretty far away removed from Sideways in terms of its its um, spontaneity and its wit, uh, which this movie, or lack thereof, really, in this movie. Um, it kind of just kind of plods along, and um, I also think that there's this sort of side humor of Amy Ryan as a character who is being constantly kind of... Um, groped by men and i think that has not particularly aged well in the in the me too era um I, the movie kind of uses it as this sort of comic uh, undercurrent and it's really not funny at all um so unfortunately i have to give this movie two stars which i see on our wonderful website todd also gave it sorry i had to do a little bit of digging there um but uh, a disappointing effort from Philip Seymour Hoffman. One of the few disappointing efforts. It's not really his fault but given that he's the director i wish i don't know i wish he could have brought maybe a little bit more of a spark to it Yep. That's pretty much exactly how I feel. I, I see I have it ranked as the number 146 of 2010. So, 
And I, I didn't even remember that much about it. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a movie that I have not seen. And I'll be honest, I really wanted that to be the movie I watched, but it wasn't something I could easily find uh, right away when I had some others that were more easily accessible. But it's definitely one that I've always wanted to see simply because I knew it was the one movie that he was able to direct. Yeah, you made a good choice, Tara. I will say, if... if um, you know, later in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about spoilers. I, I guess I sort of spoiled this movie by talking about how he overcooked the dinner. That's the best scene in the movie. Like, he freaks out that he burned this casserole that he had spent weeks trying to make. And that is a great, that's a really good scene. It recalls a little bit Adam Sandler freaking out in Punch Drunk Love and beating up the bathroom. And he just is like, you know, he's throwing shit around the kitchen. And then John Ortiz gets involved and he takes out a bat and he, uh, he like breaks <coughs> apart the, the fire alarm that won't stop. And then Philip Seymour often is like screaming and he's in the bathroom like that five minutes of the movie has a kind of frantic uh, frenetic energy that's really funny and a little bit offbeat and sinister and I wish the movie had gone more for that but instead it's just kind of slow and plodding and you have to get through a lot of just uh, junk to get to that point alright well uh, I'm going to go next with a movie that I enjoyed a lot more than you enjoyed that one (laughs) The movie that I watched, uh, I actually own quite a few Philip Seymour Hoffman movies, and there were actually a couple on my shelf that I hadn't watched before. So I decided to pick one of those, and it was one I'd always been uh, been interested to watch, just hadn't gotten around to it, as it pairs up Philip Seymour Hoffman with an acting legend. And that is uh, from 1999, Flawless, uh, written and directed by Joel Schumacher, uh, which can be a good thing or a bad thing depending on what kind of film it is he tends to take the the big budgets and ruins them but the ones that are kind of small time he really does a good job with and this is one of those that's like that um robert de niro plays a retired cop that is uh living in a bad neighborhood in new york city and he's a super straight laced ultra conservative guy and as he's helping with some uh dispute and uh, gunshots being fired in his apartment building he ends up having a stroke and in his recovery from that one of the things that is suggested is that he takes singing lessons and so he decides to uh, since it's close by to take singing lessons from the drag queen that lives downstairs played by Philip Seymour Hoffman and this unlikely pair uh, spends time together as uh as philip seymour hoffman helps him recover and helps him you know help his help melt his stone heart and uh as philip seymour hoffman is the drag queen with the heart of gold um it is uh and and as all this is going on you also have some this like crime aspect to of it where you have the uh this like drug lord of the neighborhood was robbed and everyone's looking for his money um Anyways, I was completely charmed by this movie. It shows once again that Philip Seymour Hoffman was the type of actor that could really do anything and could match wits with really anybody. And um, and you have Robert De Niro, I think, doing a wonderful job uh, playing this this stroke victim um, and really having to to act act the part here. And you had Philip Seymour Hoffman who is this over-the-top, wild uh, character that is uh, absolutely amazing. Um, I really enjoyed it. The ending is a little messy and out of control as everything just had to end somehow. Um, but I really loved it. I, it, was a, it was a lot of fun, and I'm giving it three stars. Have either of you seen this? 
I have. Uh, I think it's alright. I, I actually think De Niro is kind of disinterested in the movie. I, I don't really think... I think that's one of his worst performances, but Hoffman is amazing in it, obviously. Yeah, it's like the first role where we really saw what what he could actually do. You know, he'd, he'd been in some of these supporting character parts. I was thinking right around this time... You had, I think, Magnolia out the same year. The year before, he was the the butler in Big Lebowski. These these were the types of roles he was getting. And then here he is in this super small budget, tiny film, uh, matching wits with De Niro and and stealing the stealing the show from him. So yeah, it, it really showed uh, how wonderful he was. Zach, have you seen this? I have not seen it. I've always been curious about it. I actually remember when it came out, and you're absolutely right, Terry. This was the start of people really starting to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman more in the mainstream. Um, he was really, I think, one of the best-kept secrets of Hollywood for, for a long time, maybe until this movie. But um, you also mentioned in, in 1998, one of his best performances, you know, Happiness. I mean, the Todd Salons movie. He's amazing mm-hmm. in that movie, um, along with, you know, countless others in the 90s. But this was his first kind of semi-mainstream movie because Joel Schumacher and Robert De Niro are bigger names than what he had previously worked with. And this is a, a main role that's juicy and... Uh, I don't know, it kind of got butchered by critics, if I remember correctly, but I was always intrigued by it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fun movie. It, it, I really enjoyed it. All right, Todd, take us in the way, way back machine and tell us what you watched. Well, I'm only actually going a year back further than you. I watched <laughs> a 1998 movie called Next Stop Wonderland, and that is the second most recent movie of his that I had not seen. And he's only in three scenes, but they're memorable scenes, at least. Uh, The movie follows two characters uh, who are destined to meet and be together. And one is played by Hope Davis. Her name's Erin. And she's a nurse whose boyfriend, Sean, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, randomly leaves her and uh, to go help a Native American activist group to like try to thwart a land development operation to like build over a burial ground or something. It's kind of a weird, random first scene. Like he he pops in, and they just like argue, and he and he leaves her like on, on the street. He's got a really awesome haircut. Uh, he's like, it's like a, a mix between like Freddie Lowndes and Lester Bangs or something like that. He's like manic and awkward. Uh, well, anyway, uh, so Erin, uh, her mother puts a, an ad in the paper uh, for her, uh, and she, that leads to like a string of really horrible and progressively more boring dates. And then on the other end, there's this guy named Alan, who's played by Alan Gelfont, uh, and he's a plumber who's trying to go to school to become a marine biologist because he loves volunteering at the aquarium so much that he wants to be a marine biologist. Uh, they almost meet several times, uh, but it's always something gets in the way, like Alan's uh, family's mob connections or like Aaron's really annoying friends. Uh, the movie is directed by Brad Anderson, and his other movies are stuff like The Machinist and uh, the Halle Berry movie The Call. So this is like a kind of sort of an unexpected uh, notch in his filmography. It doesn't really fit. It's pretty much the most basic late 90s, early 2000s romantic comedy. It's like you got like uh, you've got ga- or you've got mail, uh, Jersey Girl, 200 Cigarettes, Happy Accidents. It's all in the exact same vein. It's trying to be Woody Allen. It's trying to be Kevin Smith. And it's also set in Boston, but it's so much like a New York movie, I really don't know why they set it in New England instead, but because it, it doesn't really matter where it's set, but it just feels like a, a very New York romantic comedy. 
It's got some moments of sweetness and insight, but most of the time we're just waiting for Hoffman to get back on screen. Like, he's he's crazy. He Like, in that first scene, he gives her a VHS tape that he recorded of himself with several chapters breaking down why he's going to do what he's doing and why he's leaving her. And it's just like, I, I don't know how at that point he wasn't the star of the movie. Like, the movie should have followed him and not uh, this other these other characters that it was kind of cliche how they are obviously going to end up together. Uh, I, I think it's worth seeing just for the completion of Hoffman's filmography because it was at that point right before he had his first lead and while he was like just developing that character acting genius of like Ripley and Boogie Nights and everything. And uh, Hope Davis should have been a bigger star but she never actually got that for some reason. There's nothing really else of note about the movie other than that. It was bought at Sundance, like, for way too much money by the Weinsteins, and then it flopped. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a it's an okay movie. It's nothing really memorable, and the title is kind of corny, and it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in the end. It's, uh, it's a two-and-a-half-star movie. It's it's light. It's it's okay. And it sounds like the the typical, like you said, the typical mid-'90s Philip Seymour Hoffman role. Just a small role comes up and steals the show in his ten minutes. Yep. If, if he was even on the screen for that. <laughs> he really had three scenes. Zach, have you seen this one? No, but that, like Todd said, the only thing I knew about it was that it was bought for a crazy amount of money, and it flopped, and it was like uh, the Ryan Leaf of romantic comedies in the late 90s. It just was a total disaster, and Hope Davis, like Gretchen Mole and maybe some others, is an actress who should have materialized more, but uh, it just never really happened, sadly. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think we uh, we both we all all three of us uh, brought up some some great Philip Seymour Hoffman movies. If you haven't seen much of of his uh, of his films, check it out. He's got some amazing ones. And like like we said, we picked stuff that we hadn't seen before. But we recently we talked a whole bunch about Almost Famous. I've mentioned uh, Charlie Wilson's War. Capote is the one that he won his Oscar for. We'll be talking a little bit more about one of his other Oscar nominated movies a little later on in this podcast but uh yeah if you haven't checked out his stuff um it is definitely worth looking into some of his uh some of his great work that he did and it is a shame that we don't get to see any more of it yeah and what's yeah what's what's kind of cool about the list that we came up with i mean these are not three of his best movies ever but in some ways they illustrate the uh versatility of of him i mean we have a kind of low-key um low affect socially awkward character we have someone who's over the top theatrical and a very juicy lead performance and then we have a character who's in the movie for 10 minutes and what other actor could have that kind of versatility in the, the roles that he had very few um, maybe Paul Giamatti, but uh, not not a whole lot of other actors could do it. Yeah, convincingly. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, there is our Philip Seymour Hoffman tribute, and now it's time to move on into our spotlight segment. Spotlight. And as we go through the year, one of the things that we like to do is uh, come back and look at the last year and update some of our top 10 lists. Uh, we always admit we don't see everything before our, uh, our top 10 reveals, and so it's a constantly evolving list. And so we're going to look at those and see what's changed on them. I think 
we each have two new movies that have entered our top ten, if I remember right. Uh, so, Todd, why don't you start and give us um, give us one of the movies that has entered your top ten. Okay, uh, so I have a new number three of 2018, and it is a small movie called Thunder Road. Uh, it is written, directed, and starring Jim Cummings, and it's an extension of his short film of the same name. It's about a police officer who's struggling with everything in his life, especially uh, after his mother dies and he breaks down and breaks out into dance uh, during her eulogy. Uh, he, Cummings is able to display a wide range, array of emotions. He's an amazing actor, and he I think his direct, direction is spot on, and his, his writing is more like, it's like a polished mumblecore screenplay. I actually have him in my first nominations of all three, and my winner for adapted screenplay. Uh, the tone of the movie is strange and hard to grasp at the beginning, but uh, you realize that the movie is all heart, and uh, the drama is affecting, and the laughs are painful. It's it's a special movie, and it, and most years it wouldn't rank this high, but in 2018 it's absolutely one of the best movies of the year, and it's streaming on Prime, so definitely check it out. My number three of 2018, Thunder Road. Yeah, I really want to watch that one. I need to I need to catch that. Uh, Jim Cummings sounds like a really interesting uh, up-and-coming uh, director and filmmaker. Yeah, and Todd texted me about it. I saw it right away. It's my number 14 of the year, but I feel like in five or seven years, maybe I'll look back on it and it will possibly be like maybe my number one of the year because I, I absolutely agree with what Todd's saying. It it's so unlike... I mean, the, the polished mumblecore is a really good way to characterize it, but even, even that, it just, it's really, you don't know, in the first 30 minutes, you have no idea where this where, what this movie is doing. Like, it's so weird and offbeat, and the guy is so convincing. He's an, I mean, he's a great filmmaker, obviously, but he's also an incredible actor. Like, there aren't that many actors who could convincingly play that that deeply troubled uh, a role that you want to have sympathy for, but also at the same time, you're like, this guy is just unhinged and he's having a breakdown, you know? Um, and there's just a really unique, distinct flavor to it that uh, really works quite well. The only reason it didn't rank higher for me is I didn't love the way it resolved. I thought the last 10 minutes needed a little bit of reworking, but um, I agree with Todd, though, for the most part. It's, it's an awesome movie. All right. All right. Well, Zach, why don't you give us one of your uh, movies that has now cracked your top 10 of 2018? Okay, well, uh, I'm the, I now have a new number two movie. and. Yes, and in many years this w would maybe be my number one. Um, I can't really replace Leave No Trace, but I, I will say the experience of seeing Free Solo was quite astonishing. Um, it's the Academy Award winner this year for Best Documentary, and it uh, portrays, it, it uh, looks at the uh, attempt by this climber named Alex Hanold to or Honold to climb uh, El Capitan at Yosemite National Park in California. And free soloing, if you don't know, is basically trying to scale up uh, an entire mountain, do mountain climbing, but without any equipment. And uh, you have to be pretty, like, suicidal and, like, extreme, like, you know, like, uh, what Jeremy Renner and the Hurt Locker you know you have to just have balls of steel to want to do something like that um, and the movie I think captures his mix of extreme cockiness 
and insanity with just a little bit of total insecurity about his life. Um, it also poses a really interesting question about the ethics of the filmmakers. The filmmakers actually are, play a fairly major role in the movie because they talk about how if they get, they want to capture his historic climb because this mountain has never been scaled before, at least free soloing. But if they get too much in his way, he's going to become like self-aware of the cameras in his face and that may affect his performance um, climbing up the mountains. So there's actually a few times where they do this and he admits that the cameras did get in his way and he has to kind of restart. And uh, the other facet of the movie that is incredibly interesting is that he has a relationship in the movie. Um, he has a girlfriend. And, um, you know, normally I think in a movie like this, I would sort of be a side kind of extraneous piece to it. But it's actually a key piece because to do something that suicidal and that crazy, you have to be kind of sort of totally uh, selfish and unhinged. Um, but he's in a serious relationship as this movie starts. And uh, the girlfriend, her name is Sani, she's on camera quite a bit too. And she kind of talks about how his selfishness uh, about trying to achieve this incredible goal, uh, risks his life, puts his life in jeopardy. And you can read it as selfishness, um, but you can also read it as extreme kind of motivation. Um, I don't know. I was just totally taken by this movie. I have no interest in rock climbing whatsoever. But as a piece about someone who is totally motivated to do something historic in terms of greatness and the level of kind of selfishness that involved that is involved in achieving that greatness, um, it was a riveting experience. And uh, I don't want to revisit it again because the experience to me was like actually incredibly powerful. I know it sounds weird to say, but um, it was like a, a shocking film to watch, and I absolutely loved it. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to just keep going because that's my uh, new number seven of, uh, of 2018, Free Solo. Um, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I loved, I loved the, the way it told the story. I loved how it was with him all along the way. I loved how, like you said, the filmmakers played a role in it. And, and even to the, to the one guy who literally could not watch the climb. The one filmmaker had to have his back turned the entire time because he was so nervous for someone who had become his friend as he was doing this very, very dangerous climb. And even as, as it's going along, there's even a moment where you realize just how risky this life is. As he's training for this, he hears that one of his best friends had died climbing another mountain. And, uh, and you hear just how crazy this is. I will say one of the things, uh, his girlfriend, her, like Zach said, is, her name is uh, Sani. Uh, it's Sani McCandless. And I went on a deep dive after watching this to see if she was related to Christopher McCandless, who is the, uh, the guy who was made infamous by the um, Into the Wild uh, book and movie. Uh, it looks like there's no relationship there. There's no connection between the two. But I had to say it because it was one of the things that really distracted me as I was watching. It's like, wait a second, McCandless. Anyways, uh, yeah, it, it's amazing. The guy is absolutely insane. But like like you said, he, it's it's him striving to do something great, and like that was the next great thing to do. And and I like how you said it, it's supreme cockiness because that's really what it has to be in order to pull something like this off. You have to be able to say to yourself, "I am good enough to not need any help, not need anybody else with me, not need any ropes, any harnesses, any nothing. I'm good enough to do this completely on my own." And when you're talking about a four thousand foot climb, that's impressive. Uh, and uh, I mean, you know how it's going to end. 
but yet there's this amazing suspense with it too. I I loved it. Todd, you've seen this, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I'm not as high in it as you guys. It ranks more around like 25 or so for me. I I think it it kind of plays with the audience some. Like I, I it's it's pretty obvious that he's going to make it to the top just because he's had like you know a hundred dry runs where he did it perfectly just with a harness. It's like it's like he knew that thing back like back and front. There's no way that he was not gonna make it. You know, and he's done it every single day for the last like couple months. But I don't know. Well, but th- that's just part of the movie. Part I think of it. most people going into the movie probably even realize that because he's actually a fairly well-known mountain climber, and they, they sort of talk about that in the movie. But I think it's actually really impressive that maybe not too dissimilar to Apollo 13, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, the movie um, still manages to make the ending um, surprising but also uh, really satisfying because it isn't so much about the, whether he makes it or not. It's actually more about sort of how his feet impacts the people around him and what their reaction is to it so in a way it becomes less about the actual climb itself and more about the characters that we get to know over the course of the film and in that sense you know you can know the ending of this movie but still be really satisfied i think still be very satisfied watching it and surprised about how uh, his climb uh, materializes i was fascinated i just didn't think it was as exhilarating as as you made it seem out to be because i i mean because it was kind of it was kind of lessened by the fact that, like, yeah, I mean, he's done this a million times. It's not like it was the first time he's jumped from that one side to the other side after he was holding it by one thumb or whatever. I think it's like he'd crazy. done that every day for the last no. couple of years. Are you crazy? Are you, he missed it in the movie. Like, he, Yeah, he, once. He has, they, but... The one time he missed it probably out of the, like, 200 times he did it while they were there at the mountain. Yeah, but it's a completely different it. experience doing it free soloing. If you're wearing gear, it's one thing. It's a whole psychological factor. Like, if you're not wearing any gear, it's so much more dangerous is that i think i mean you, you, I, I don't know you're crazy todd well, and he also is like oh man i, I could have just free soloed and not brought the cameras at, at any point it's like yeah so that why does that make us care about you at all like <laughs> but that's well, an but he's a douchebag i mean that's another thing about the movie it's like he, he is a total asshole yeah no it's but, it's weird that Werner herzog did not direct this movie but i yes. honestly i did actually <laughs> like the movie it, it is like it it is around like 25 on my list so but I, I just don't think it's one of the top ten of the year. I was fascinated by, and, and it's something that, you know, if you if you spend a lot of time watching sports, you notice the, the great ones are always obsessed with what they're doing and obsessed with greatness. He was obsessed with this climb, and his attention to detail was insane. There, at one point, he tries it and uh, and didn't and decided to stop partway up and, and was going to try it again later. And as he went back to to start training again, he gets to he's climbing up and he says, "This this spot right here, this is the spot that made me want to stop. The, this one hold right here." And he's looking at like a three inch piece of rock on this four thousand foot tall cliff. I'm like, how do you know it's this tiny little three inch piece right here of this entire wall, this tiny little speck? Because he'd done it a million times. I know, and but that's what I'm saying. Just how obsessed he was with this and how how much he studied i never even considered the fact that that rock climbing on that level is such a such a skill of of studying the mountain and uh, and that that was one of the things i found fascinating about this you'd ha- wouldn't you hang out with him todd at least admit that he'd be fun to hang out with 
I, I guess. Like, we should invite him on I actually Vegas watched some YouTube time. videos about him talking about how all his friends got picked to be in Point Break and he didn't get to. He's kind of upset about it. <laughs> all of his rock climbing friends. He, he lives in Vegas, apparently, according to he this does. movie. So look, next time we go there, I, I, he would be awesome to hang out with. That's all I'm saying. Alex, if you're listening to this podcast, because I'm, you know, one of our six listeners, hang out with us next time. Absolutely. You're invited. All right, Girlfriend, Todd. not so much. I don't know. I mean, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a different story. I wasn't a huge fan of her, but move on. Todd, why don't you tell us about your other movie? All right, my new number 10 of 2018 is a movie that is a feature directorial debut by a Spanish filmmaker named Eva Vivas, and it is called All About Nina. And uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead plays the title character, and she's a provocative stand up comedian who spends her nights getting drunk and having one night stands and really just living in like self-hatred and then she gets a big career opportunity in LA so she flies out there and meets uh Rafe who is played by Oscar winner Common and uh she falls hard for him but she's always she's really skeptical of it because uh she doesn't really think she needs or wants things to work out for her and she doesn't think she really deserves it I guess and as the film plays out, you get to know more about her character and why she is the way she is and, until we get, like, this really deep emotional scene near the end that is hard to not just get blindsided by. Uh, the supporting cast has got character actors and comics like Jay Moore and Catherine Man- Ca- Cameron Mannheim and uh, Frau from Austin Powers. Uh, <laughs> if, if the movie had starred Emma Stone... Or Amy Schumer or someone like that, then it would have been a huge hit and a surefire Golden Globe contender. But instead, it's like in relative obscurity and has less than a thousand votes on IMDb. Uh, it's a tremendous comedy drama and out of nowhere just like destroyed me. And it, I think uh, Marisa Elizabeth Winstead gave the best female lead performance in 2018. Wow. And now it's my number 10 of two th- uh, number 10 of the year and it's on Netflix, so it's not hard to find. And I don't know why more people haven't found it. Well, hopefully now they will. I'll have to check that yeah. out. I didn't know Frau from Austin Powers was still doing movies. I didn't either. I didn't know she changed her name to that either. Well, yeah. yeah. It's like young William Miller. Like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach, give us your other movie. Okay, uh, number seven now on my list of 2018 is a movie I've mentioned on the podcast a couple episodes ago. It is uh, a, well, It was a nominee for Best Foreign Film at this year's Academy Awards. It is Capernaum from Lebanon, directed by Nadine Labaki. And it tells the story of a 12-year-old uh, boy who, um, according to IMDb, the plot is that he sues his parents for neglect, which makes it sound like a ripoff of North, the horrible Rob Reiner movie. Um, In truth, that's like the opening 10 minutes of the movie, but the rest of the movie isn't really so much about that. It's more about how, yes, he deals with neglectful parents and uh, an impoverished family, um, but it's also about how he struggles to survive once he leaves that family. Um, His sister is essentially sold into an arranged marriage, and she is like 10 years old and it's really terrible and he casts off his family uh, swears them off goes into this urban area where he befriends a uh, Ethiopian immigrant uh, young mother and he essentially becomes sort of like her adopted son in a way but also becomes a caregiver for her infant son when she is kind of put in uh, uh, like deportation kind of containment um 
And so the the there's a long stretch of the movie when this uh, this uh, immigrant mother is is has been detained and Zane as a 12 year old boy has to care for this infant uh, Jonas and um, those stretches of the movie are exhilarating. Um, if the movie had been just that, just this kid with this baby along the streets trying to find food, trying to feed the baby, trying to make him go to sleep and things like that. It would have been my number one of the year. Um, and as it is, it's, it's my number seven, so it's still a really good movie. Um, I didn't so much love the whole angle of him suing his parents. When he goes back to his family, it isn't quite as, as riveting. But but the relationship that he has with this young mother and her infant um, and, and how he has to basically take on the role as, as a caregiver, um, it's reminiscent a little bit of Chop Shop, the great uh, movie from the late uh, 2000s uh, and it has I think the best lead male performance of any movie of 2018 uh, the young actor's name is Zane Al-Rafia he's in every scene of the movie um, when you're 12 years old a non-professional untrained actor uh, I, I would imagine it has to be overwhelming to have a camera in your face the entire time and for you to have to emote uh, and carry basically the whole movie but he does an extraordinary job this is a movie that's been championed by Oprah number of uh, film critics it is very much worth checking out um, very cool movie and frankly probably would have been the movie I would have voted for best foreign film um, over shoplifters even which itself is a, is a really good movie so uh, definitely worth che- checking out Capernaum my number seven yeah i actually just watched that this week i think it's good i don't think it's as good as you're saying i it feels like a farhadi wannabe sort of but it definitely it definitely is uh involving and uh it, it's a good movie i i could see why it's on your list it makes sense i mean you have to admit that 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 kid is astonishing in the movie i mean did you nominate him for your best actor he's he's amazing in it uh no he didn't make my top five. Oh, cruel I mean, you know, Jim Cummings is good too, but but this kid is a non-professional and he's 12 years old and he has to carry the whole movie. Like that's that's rough. That's a tough assignment and he absolutely pulls it off uh, amazingly. I also think I really wanted to give a Best Supporting Actor nomination to the baby in the movie. I think this is one of the great baby performances in any movie. Um, he's His name is Bula Tifa Treasure Bancoli, and uh, I wanted to give him a. I mean, do you know what I'm saying, Todd? Like, th- this is a great baby performance. <laughs> He's really good in it. The yeah, best as far baby, as baby performances baby goes go, out. yeah, this is uh, it's near the top. He's awesome in the movie. Like, it's a great performance. So, in case how he... long do you think before he realizes he was in a movie? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. He was he was starting to talk a little bit toward the end of the movie. So I don't know. Maybe you know, maybe sooner than later. So in case you're wondering, if you want Zach to love your movie, have a child actor be your main character. That's like a, a go-to, like, shoe-in, Zach's gonna love it if a child well, actor is the main character. Well, of course, and of course if it's foreign language, and of course if it's depressing, which this movie is. All it's, those it's, help. It's, it's, it's he loves his infantes. <laughs> okay. So now to me, my number six, my new number six on my top ten was probably the movie I was most disappointed I didn't watch before our reveal. Um, as as an eighth grade teacher on my day job, it was a crime that I hadn't seen eighth grade yet, and now I've seen it, and now it's my number six. Uh, Bo Burnham's writing and directorial debut uh, about uh, this young girl... Played by Elsie Fisher, her character's name is Kayla. Uh, 
it is it's absolutely incredible i i was just struck by how how real it was like it didn't feel like it felt like we were watching a documentary of sorts it didn't feel like it was acting it felt um being in that world it i know kids just like that um and i've known kids just like that and it is it was amazing to watch every every performance was incredible every uh and and nothing felt forced everything felt so natural um i was blown away by how how great this uh this movie was put together um yeah i i it kind of left me speechless i was watching it and just was amazed so yes this is my this is my new number six so the writer didn't make your top ten no. Oh, where did the writer end up? I remember you said that you you it was going to be on your top ten when it, I made you watch it. It was, and then I watched Eighth Grade and Free Solo. Like it was gonna be, it was gonna be my number ten, my new number ten, and then I watched. So now it's number twelve. So, ah, yeah. It well, was, I would have bet that Eighth Grade was gonna be higher on your list. Yeah, it's not surprising. Yeah, I it's mean, a great, it, it's a great movie though. So give it a, give it some time. It might end up higher, but uh. But yeah, Josh Hamilton. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, it, it was a great movie. It was a great movie. If you haven't seen it, it is definitely worth a watch. Unless you really don't want to go back and relive some of the middle school awkwardness, uh, because it's all over this movie. Terry, um, do you do you allow your kids to have cell phones in their class? No. Because I think this this movie is a big argument about about why kids should not have cell phones. No, no, they are not allowed to have their cell phones out in class. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. All right, so that's our top ten update. We've both we've all got um, a few new ones and. Like I said, it's always adapting, so we may have uh, have some more top ten updates for you later on. But for now, let's get into our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. Todd, can you give us a score update on power rankings? Okay, uh, we have me with uh, 11 and a half. And then we have Zach with seven and a half and Terry with six. I'm wondering if this half thing is ever going to get resolved. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. yeah, I don't know. It, I mean, it depends. I, it, I don't know if it's either going to have us just tie or if like we don't have a list to predict or something. Like maybe that would be get another half a point. <laughs> yeah. Um. So doing our, our, our favorite feature deep dives has kind of made it so we don't do this quite as often anymore, but I always like seeing, seeing where we're at and, and uh, especially our game at the end as we, as we guess Adam's list. And this will be an interesting one to do um, because I am in last place by quite a bit still, and that's after winning last time. So, uh, so I got to pick the topic. And I was looking ahead at the fact that we have Avengers Endgame coming out next week. And I'm already starting to see stuff all over social media. Whenever you see it, don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. Let let everybody see it. Give it some time. Well, what we're going to be looking at in this 
uh, in this power rankings here is we're going to be looking at the top five spoiler alerts. We're looking at the top five movies either that we are glad no one spoiled for us or uh, or glad or that were spoiled for us, uh, whichever way you want to look at it. And, um, and, and, and yeah, and so we're, that's, that's how we're going to be going on, going through this. It's a little open-ended, uh, which is going to make it really hard to predict some other lists, but, uh, but I think it's a really fun one. I think it's going to be fun to look at. So... I think I'm gonna go ahead and start. You, you, you guys, you guys like my. I, I know you guys did not like this topic at all. It, it's. I don't know. There's not enough structure to it, so. <laughs> no, I didn't really like it. Uh, I, I liked it. I liked it. So, just so you know, there might be some spoiler alerts in this in this segment. However. I, ha- I have a feeling it's safe to say that everything that we're going to be spoiling has been out long enough that you should have seen it by now. I mean, come on. Okay. Not, not, not always, not necessarily the case, but... Not okay. Necess- okay, not necessarily, but... Okay. All right. So, my number five. So, I looked at this in a couple different ways. I looked at it as stuff that may have been spoiled for me that really had lost its impact by the time I saw it. Or... or Plot points or twists in a story that I most, um, I was the most glad I weren't spoiled for me, because it would have completely changed the the viewing experience of the film. And uh, uh, it's really easy to look at what happens at the end of the movie, like a twist right at the end that would have changed everything. But this first one is a twist that happens in the middle. And my number five is. Uh, from a beautiful mind i went into this movie for the f- the first time i watched it this 2001 film uh starring russell crowe uh, and based on true stories john nash and um and when you watch the trailer for this movie you you hear how he uh how he's this brilliant mathematician that gets hired by the government to solve these government secrets and it looks like the suspense thriller and everyone's out to get him and then halfway through the movie you find out it's all in his head and he, and instead of him being this, this genius hired by the government, he's a schizophrenic. And how much of what you've been really seeing is real. And I remember going through this the first time I watched it, and thinking, what what's happening to him? They're finally caught up, caught up to him. They're finally gonna get this guy. Just to find out, wait a second, this, it, it like it took like a while for me to finally be convinced this really was all in his head and I felt like I was like discovering it with John Nash that it was all in his head simply because that little detail that um that guides the whole second half of the movie I didn't have spoiled for me and so um yeah number five on my list is A Beautiful Mind and I it's one of my favorite movies of all time and I don't know if it would be if that first time I watched it if I had known that detail all right that's a good one zach number five number five is uh, a beautiful mind on my list amazing terry we are perfectly in sync <laughs> remarkable um so maybe i understood your list better than i thought i did yeah uh, <laughs> everything that terry said is true 
um, I think in a way it's sort of an underrated spoiler because it's not like people really talk about the twist in the middle of the movie. It's more, and I, I think what's kind of curious about it too is that having uh, when I saw the movie, I was aware that John Nash was a schizophrenic. I guess I didn't really know what the term schizophrenic meant. Maybe I was, you know, cause I was only fourteen years old when I saw it. Um, but yes, that twist in the middle of the movie really comes out of nowhere. And what's really interesting about it is. Um, you really grow to like John Nash, and at that point of the movie, you really are starting to believe, given that the movie takes place in the 1950s, that uh, he absolutely is this undercover operative for the CIA, um, and that uh, the movie is going in that direction. It's uh, it's gonna because at that point when the movie came out, John John Nash, I wouldn't say he was like especially a household name. The trailers revealed absolutely nothing about the twist in the middle of the movie. Um, and you kind of thought it was just going to be about sort of a standard biopic about how he worked for the government and overcame these kind of mental issues, but uh, it blindsides you midway through. And uh, I think it would be a great shame to tell people, as we talk about it on the podcast, <laughs> it, is, it is a 20-year-old, almost 20-year-old movie, so in, in some ways it's fair, but uh, uh, it would be a shame to go into that movie know, knowing the twist in the middle. In fact, I think, I think actually relatively we've been fairly, um, I don't know, uh, modest about re- revealing what the what the real spoiler is, but uh, it, it, it blindsides you midway through. I, I think one of our podcasts, we need to do a deep dive on A Beautiful Mind. I would love to do a deep dive on that one. And one last thing I will say, because of how this, this twist comes about, um, and because of the like five minutes where you don't really understand what's going on, I have always thought that Christopher Plummer was a little sketch. He's he's a little sketchy. He he's he's he represents the the evil in the world. I mean, the movie's so impa- <laughs> impactful and affecting that for the first 10, 10 to fifteen minutes, when Russell Crowe is basically they try to convince him that he's schizophrenic, we we really side with him. I mean, at least the first time you watch it, you're like, yeah, this guy's not crazy. Everyone else around him is crazy. So I think that's a testament to the screenplay and the in the filmmakers of uh, really getting uh, the character, uh, you know, um, having an emotional connection with the characters that, that done really well in that movie. All right, yeah. Okay, Todd, is your number five a beautiful mind? No, unfortunately. That is a really good one. I, I didn't think of that. Uh, okay, so my number five, I uh, went with uh, the end of season four of Dexter. Ooh. Now, there is something that happens, and I don't even want... There's a death that happens that... Uh, yeah, if this I had is known that you going cannot in, spoil. You cannot spoil this. If I had known this going in, I would have gone shopping for 30 yards of polyethylene sheeting, if you know what I mean. Like, I would have been pissed if I would have known this before. <laughs> and, and there's nothing leading up to the end of season four that could prepare you for what actually happens. Like, you get so wrapped up in the Trinity Killer and what he represents and the threat he poses to Dexter that you completely let your guard down. And it's it's like it's just so unexpected that unexpected that the following following the season people were like questioning whether it actually happened or not, like whether it was somehow like a dream or something. But it's devastating, disturbing, and one of those things that just makes me hold Dexter in such a high regard. And why season four is the absolute apex of the series. That uh, I I mean, ha- had it been spoiled before I binged my way through that point, it, I it would have just cheapened it. I feel like and. Uh, it would have ruined the entire arc of the show for me. So that, that that's got to be one of the ones that I'm glad that did not get spoiled beforehand. I, I remember when I was watching 
watching my way through that, and you were like, dude, have, have you gotten to season four yet? No, I haven't. I was, oh, okay, okay. When you get there, let me know. <laughs> yeah. Because then we can talk. Yeah, no, totally. That's when it gets real. <laughs> and that, yeah, exactly. And it's one of those that it, it, it almost... There, there are several points in that show where something huge will happen and it almost makes the rest of the series feel a little like a letdown because it's not it's never gonna be like that again it's never gonna hit you like that again end of season four end of season six i would say would be another one too that it's it's never and end of season two you could say as well it's never gonna hit that again but then if somehow it finds a way, like, every couple seasons to do it again, and then season eight just fell off a cliff as it tried to do the same thing. True. Yeah. Okay. And if you haven't seen Dexter, go watch it. Right. If you have seen it, you know exactly what we're talking about right now. If you've watched two episodes, then uh, watch more. Yeah, Zach, if you've watched two episodes, you should watch more. Uh, it Okay. <laughs> All right. Number four on my list. Um, so for for number four, I had to I had to make it a tie. I hate doing that, but I had to because number four on my list is um, Kevin Spacey's 1995. Because um, he had two of the greatest potential spoiler alerts ever, with with Usual Suspects and Seven, and. Um, Usual Suspects, because of how that twists at the end... Um, I thought you were going to say Outbreak. Uh, no, no. Oh, that's a great darn. one, too. So I love Outbreak. I love that movie. Anyways, no. So, Usual Suspects, the way it ends, it, it took it it took a, a really, really good film and made it an amazing film. As you're constantly trying to find out who Kaiser Soze is. Um... However, I think even more so than that, Seven, the moment where you realize Kevin Spacey is in the movie is was one of like my favorite moments in like all of all of watching movies. As you're going through and you're seeing all this stuff happen and then all of a sudden there's Kevin Spacey standing in the middle of the precinct. Um, I mean, you, you could say everything you want about the end and what's in the box my favorite twist in that is finding out kevin spacey's in it was kept so under wraps his name wasn't even revealed until the end of the movie in the like closing credits the first thing that pops up is and kevin spacey and because his his involvement in this movie was so so low-key i i loved that moment and i would have hated to lose that experience of catching it the first time what's the thing like like uh, the closest thing we've come to in that regard now, like now that everything is online, like is it like, uh, like Matt Matt Damon in Interstellar or something like that, or like Michael C. Hall in Game Night? I, I mean, what's what's the next one of those that like you have no idea they're in it until they actually show up? Bruce or Willis in Ocean tw- Ocean's Twelve. Bill Murray in Zombieland. I yeah, mean, none of those are yeah. as, as none of those are as good. Yeah, I know. That, it's hard to do that now. It's just and, it's like, and everything we're talking about is like a cameo too. I mean, the, the this was like I mean, he was in the last like half hour, forty minutes of the movie, 
and nobody knew he was in it at all. And it was one that, I mean, Todd, we saw it for the first time together, and we didn't see it until, you know, six, seven years after it came out. And when it came out, that no one had spoiled that. It was one of those, like, you don't spoil this. (laughs) All right. Zach, number four. I think I knew that going into seven, so it had been spoiled for me. So Uh, it's not as remarkable, maybe, as, as it would have been for audiences in 1995. Same with the ending of the, the Usual Suspects. That had long been spoiled for me before the first time I saw it. Oh, that had not been spoiled for me. So it it hit hard when that happened. Same. Yeah, I I just didn't I didn't care. Um, I I was over that movie. Anyway, um, actually speaking of the Usual Suspects, it, the Usual Suspects is not my number four, but my number four is also a film that curiously I actually don't really like that much. I gave a thumbs down to it, and I still stand by it. But in a way, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't spoiled for me because it's just a movie where a bunch of crazy shit happens. And that is from last year, Sorry to Bother You. Uh, I know Todd was a big fan of this movie. Um, I think maybe like uh, Thunder Road, and uh, just give me like five or six years and maybe I'll actually grow to like this movie. I feel like I wasn't smart enough to understand what the director was trying to say in this movie. But um, I went into this movie, having watched the trailer, believing it was about... Uh, a black guy played by Lakeith Stanfield who is uh, working for this phone operation, phone operator hotline trying to sell people stuff and he uses a quote-unquote white person voice. And that really is the, the setup of the movie for the first 30 minutes. And then, um, shall we say the movie gets absolutely crazy? I'm still not really sure what happens. Um, That's an understatement. <laughs> but, and I can't really say that it, it was like that fun to watch but it it was kind of crazy just seeing what kind of shit would happen next and how and and the level to which the bar would be risen because it just keeps getting crazier and crazier and then when you think that it can't get any crazier it actually still gets crazier so i guess i give props to the filmmaker i don't understand the movie someone needs to write some kind of doctoral dissertation exploring the interpretation and the freudian psychoanalysis of the movie or whatever um maybe i'll read it maybe i'll understand it more but uh from just a pure visceral level um i'm glad no one really told me about that or maybe i'm not maybe i would have liked the movie more had it been spoiled for me but uh gosh uh what was that i mean that was wow wow is all i have to say number four sorry to bother you it, it, it was like it was like boots riley took took get out and and put it on steroids and that's what you get is is what happens there i remember when i when i watched it i watched it there were like five people in the theater with me and half of them I didn't even know and when it got and it, even when it got to that part in the middle of the theater we just started looking at each other like what the hell is going on like out loud in the middle of the movie I've never had conversations with people I don't know in a theater in the middle of a movie before because we were all on this ride together and we had no idea what was going on. <laughs> I mean, I think there's at least a 1% chance that this movie was just a big social experiment by Boots Riley and maybe he like fitted in like cameras and movie theaters just to see people's reactions to how crazy things got. But um, it's crazy. Just don't don't read about it. See it, but don't see it because I didn't actually think it was that good of a movie. But But from a spoiler level, it was like, wow, unbelievable. And, and I agree. I, I, I think I... I I think I have it as a two and a half star movie, something like that. But it's worth a watch because of how insane this is. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think we need a power rankings of bad movies that are good to watch. And I know Todd liked this movie. So it, and, and a lot of people bad did like this movie. Bad movies worth a watch. I like that but, one. <laughs> but Sorry to Bother You is worth watching, even though it's a bad movie. But uh, just, you know, from don't, don't read about it. Go in blind, like most people. And I agree with you. I think watching it more, it might... It might actually, I might actually end up enjoying it, but yeah, it was so out in left field and no, yeah, I didn't see it coming at all. Yeah. That movie is something else. (laughs) (laughs) It, it, it's, it's, uh, you can't describe it. You really can't. Yeah. Okay. Todd, number four. All right. My number four is, uh, something that had I known it beforehand, it would have just changed how I watched it, and it probably wouldn't have been as interesting, and that'd be the end of Memento. Uh, like, the movie has, like, that awesome structure where, I mean, it, I mean, it, it winds up and lets you know that it's more than just a gimmick, but, like, I don't know, if you had known that Lenny was John G and he had killed his wife, then, like, the joy of piecing everything together would have been completely gone, I feel like, and at that point, it would have just been, like, a funky way to watch a movie and not, like, a mind-bending work of art. I, I mean, the DVD is even a puzzle to figure out how to play the damn movie. Like, so, if, like, if you know what the puzzle is in the end, then it's going to depreciate the entire process of watching the movie. I it, I don't think the movie is all that rewatchable anyway, but I, I just like to leave it in my memory as something that was unforgettable when I watched it. But had I known the ending, then I feel like I wouldn't have needed to watch the movie at all. That might be popping up on my list in a little bit. Yeah. So I'll talk about it more okay. then. Uh, number number three on my list is probably it's one of the greatest spoiler alerts of all time, and it's one that I I don't know how you could ever not have this spoiled for you because it's such a part of our culture, and that is Luke, I am your father from Empire Strikes Back. Um, this is something I mean. By the time I, I was probably middle school when I finally got around to watching Star Wars for the first time. But by then, everybody knows the line, Luke, I am your father. Everybody knows that Darth Vader is Luke's father. I would have loved to have been in a theater in 1980 and seeing this without real knowing that this was that this was what was going on, that Darth Vader was actually Luke's father. That uh, that would have been. I, I always wonder, you know, how in in Star Wars, how how to watch it to give as little away as possible. And yeah, Empire Strikes Back. Being able, to, I I wish I could watch that spoiler free for the first time and go through Empire Strikes Back and have that moment of what? Because that uh, that had to be like the first one that just completely turned everything on its head. And, and the first, I would say, the first greatest spoiler alert. Um, so, yeah, number three, I had to go with uh, Empire Strikes Back. Luke, I am your father. Yeah, I remember Mark Hamill saying when he read the script, uh, he, he asked George Lucas, like, he's he's lying, right? Like, <laughs> like there's no way. <laughs> and apparently I don't that, even believe it. Apparently that secret was kept really, really under wraps because and, and, the original script said, um, Obi-Wan killed your father. And mm. and then at the very right before uh, George tells tell told Mark Hamill this is actually going to be the line, and and one of his favorite stories to tell is sitting in the premiere, and at the premiere as they're watching it, 
Um, and it says, Luke, I am your father. Harrison Ford turns to Mark Hamill and says, you didn't tell me that. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. Yeah, it's great. It's great. So, I mean, even the, even the actors in the movie, it, it was unspoiled for. But now it's spoiled for everybody. All right. Zach, number three. Okay, well, so I tried to... This is where, like, my list verges a little bit because I didn't want this to just be about, like, twist endings. I, I this, this list is not... To me, it wasn't just about greatest twist endings in movies. It was more about um, how you didn't want to spoil the experience of watching it and you want to go into it fresh. So it's not necessarily about a screenplay that, you know, I mean, we, we mentioned A Beautiful Mind, but my number three pick is not necessarily a movie that has like a surprise ending per se or, um, you know, a big twist in it per se, but it's a movie that you wouldn't want people to tell you about too much before going into it. And that movie is from 2002 and it is Spike Jones's adaptation. Um, like, uh, it has such a crazy premise and I think it's actually okay to go into the movie knowing the premise a little bit. I remember having seen the movie and uh, seeing the, having seen the trailer for it and knowing vaguely that it was going to be sort of, I, I thought, a sort of gimmicky idea about Nicolas Cage playing twin brothers who are the actual screen screenwriter of adaptation. But what's remarkable about the movie is you can still even go into, into the movie having known that piece of information and you still can't really predict what you're about to see. It's just, I guess, in the same category as Sorry to Bother You. It's just when, when you think the movie can't get more surprising or um, totally unpredictable, it does. It just keeps raising the bar over and over again over the course of the movie and especially if you look at like the last 15 minutes I almost thought about also maybe making this a tie with being John Malkovich but adaptation especially in the last like 15 to 20 minutes it just changes genres so rapidly it goes places that you would not expect at all it gets absolutely crazy and it's not necessarily a twist ending per se but it's just the sign of a screenwriter who is totally and completely uh uninhibited with the way that he wanted to take the story so um in a way also it's kind of spoiler proof i mean you could tell people essentially what happens in the movie and yet the experience of watching it in the context and the relationships of the characters it still comes off as like total w so um, it's totally out there. You know, Charlie Kaufman, I mean, you could put any number of his movies on this list, but adaptation for me is one that I, I remember the experience of seeing thinking like, what is going on here? I cannot possibly predict what is going to happen next in this movie. And I loved it. Um, I love that it wasn't spoiled. I agree with that comment that pretty much any Charlie Kaufman movie could be on this list. I mean, you could throw Eternal Sunshine on this list. You could throw Synecdoche, New York on this list of it, the less you know, the best. There's nothing. There's not like any like, twists in it. Right. But there's not twists in the movie. The, it's just it goes places you would never expect. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great choice. That's a great choice. Todd, number three. All right, my number three is uh, the details of Clay's tape in Thirteen Reasons Why, and. So oh. that show on Netflix is one of the most furious binge watches I ever had, and immediately I have yet you just... to see that, by the way. Okay, well I won't say what happens. Well, <laughs> immediately you're drawn to Clay and like his innocence, and you wonder why he could have been he had his own tape, and you know why he'd be blamed for the suicide of Hanno when you know he was so fond of her. And most of the show is like typical high school drama stuff, but we care so much about Clay that and how he fits in the story. 
and I found myself like just analyzing and overanalyzing details that I wouldn't normally analyze. Just you know, like, and, like pausing it, try to figure out what exactly is going on and where Clay actually fits into the whole story. And when you get to the end, it was like I was. I felt like Ethan Hawke in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead when Philip Seymour Hoffman tells him the like wh who they're actually robbing. It was just like cringing and devastated and horrified. And, I don't know, I had several conversations with people about it, and if I had known it before, it would have been, like, anticlimactic, and I wouldn't have nearly enjoyed watching the whole season, and especially not as fast as I did. But I was just hooked to the show because of, of what it was holding, what, what it was withholding in that last episode of season one, and yeah, so that is, that's gotta be on the list, that's, that's my number three. All right. Number two on my list is one that Todd already mentioned, and that's Memento. Uh, I echo everything that he said, um, and that, yeah, it's one where if you know the ending, the rest of the movie doesn't really matter. Um, because it, you, I, I mean, it is interesting to see how it, how it twists and turns in his, in his, you know, state of short-term memory lost but i love i love the way it tells the story and how you discover everything with him and knowing the ending would kind of ruin that um todd said it's it's not very rewatchable i would say the best way to rewatch it is with someone who has never seen it before i've done that several times where i i'm like okay i want to i want to relive the experience of watching this for the first time so i'm going to do it through you and watch it with you and let you experience what happens so i can get a glimpse of what that experience was I, it's it's such an amazing movie and yeah if you know that ending and understand what that all means it 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 ruins the the whole thing for you so i'm i'm saying number two memento zach just, just gonna throw that out there i don't think it's the world's greatest twist I don't know. I remember watching the movie, even when it came out, and kind of piecing that together a little bit. I, I don't think it's quite as blindsided as some of the other spoilers but, we've had. But but it's a it's the journey and getting and putting it all together That's too. That's that, true. That if you know it ahead of time, the journey doesn't matter. That's true. And you know, anyone who you know puts themselves uh, you know with the moral superiority of having predicted the twist, uh, you know. Just um, that, that's lame. I mean, it, it, it's a great movie, so it, it definitely stands up uh, on its own. Um, okay, my number two is, uh, I think it has to be the greatest twist ending of all time. I mean, like I said, I didn't want to make mine the greatest twist endings list, but uh, there's just no way that you could talk about uh, the greatest spoilers all time without talking about the spoiler to end all spoilers, which was The Sixth Sense. I mean, this was a movie that radically changed cinema um, and made the notion of a twist ending uh, popular. Maybe it was popular before The Sixth Sense, but after The Sixth Sense, it became not just M. Night Shyamalan's trademark, but uh, the trademarks of imitators. And frankly, it never got as good as The Sixth Sense. Um, and what's great about the twist ending, I mean, at this point, everyone knows, although maybe the movie has ha, is now old enough where it's 20 years removed, maybe this younger millennial generation isn't quite aware of it, but of course, you know, everyone is aware that Bruce Willis is dead, it's, everyone says it, but... Um, 
I'm I, I, one of the things I'm grateful for in my life is that I watched that movie without knowing the ending, watching it on home video on a VHS copy, and thinking that oh okay everyone's happy now you know Haley Joel Osment has gotten over his issues and he's you know he's now uh, doing you know uh, makeup with the ghosts at his high, at his middle school play and Bruce Willis you know he's trying to get on with his wife and the movie's about to end and they're you know they're going to reconnect and then bam out of nowhere the twist ending happens which it's so wonderfully done that it, it, it it's in this kind of montage thing where it doesn't even necessarily blow you over the head with it. You still have to kind of piece it together on your own. It's math. It's masterful. And it, in a way it ruined Shyamalan's career because the expectation was every other movie he would make would also have an equally impactful surprise ending, which none of his other movies have ever come close. Um, and uh, yeah, it still holds up great. So number two, it has, it has to be on your list. If it's not on your list, what are you talking about? You have no credibility. Yeah, yeah, it, it it was one that I, I mean, it felt like the obvious one, so I I left it I left it off. But I agree with you. It was one that I think was spoiled for me when I watched it. Um, but I don't think it matters because I, I even rewatched it about six months ago, and it is still a remarkable movie, even knowing it, because it's one of those that you have to go back and watch just to see. Oh, oh yeah, this. Oh yeah, this part here too. This part, everything actually works. And you just don't notice it. But when you go back and watch it again, you're like, oh man, that was so obvious. So uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it's, it is one of those that uh, you can put on a pedestal of like the top, top spoiler alerts, top twist endings of all time. I know Todd agrees with us. He's a huge fan of this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's a good twist, but I don't think it makes it any less boring. Like, it's impossible to stay awake during, so. <laughs> terrible. Absolutely terrible. We need to have an entire podcast devoted to The Sixth Sense and talk really about why Todd doesn't like this movie and what's wrong with him. I'd be up for that. I'd rather do The Happening. <laughs> <laughs> the Happening is actually an underrated movie. I gave it three stars. I've never actually seen The Happening. Hey. There we go. Maybe uh, after uh, trivia. Maybe. Yeah, maybe after trivia when I if I if lose again. Yeah. All right, Todd. Number two. All right, number two is similar to my number three, but even more so because I've never been more obsessed with a show than I was with uh, the killing and who killed Rosie Larson. So mm. I think the show was definitely ahead of its time. AMC had it, and it was so it was week to week, and uh, but I see why it's now like had a second life on netflix because that's how people watch shows now but like every week i would watch the show watch the episode twice and i would have conversations with my sister about you know breaking down the new evidence and checking the new vegas odds and see who who was a leading <laughs> guy all to have the new scoop on who actually killed rosie larson it took two seasons uh, to figure it out and was it, you know, it was like, was it the person I expected all along? Was it the kid they introduced that just kind of disappeared? Was it the ex? Was it, like, one of the unstable family members? And why is the mayor part of this? Or It's like, uh, I don't know. If I had known where it was, I wouldn't have been nearly as interested. It's still a well-told show. And and it's, it's a really interesting story. But I, I just, I, I can't think that not having that, like, lingering thing of, like, not knowing and, like, knowing that it's coming eventually and to know how it actually unfolds, I, I think it would have, it, it wouldn't nearly have been as interesting. And I don't really watch the, the show that much because it's sort of just ingrained in my memory way more than if I just watched, like, it as, like, a 13-hour movie or whatever, but 
like that experience of having watching that show was one of the best I've ever had watching a TV show. And so that if it had been spoiled, I would have been so upset. Yeah, that's one I never watched, but I remember you being so obsessed with it and like being so upset with me that I wasn't on it. <laughs> yeah. I know. So I pretty we- much forced Trisha to start watching it like four episodes in so that I could have somebody to talk to about it. <laughs> Would you have put Vegas odds on who ended up being Rosie's killer? I don't know. It's com- it's complicated. Um, no, good, I would not. Ha- I would not have. I would not have laid the money on that person. No, I would not. But I'm not going to spoil it. Even though I think I actually spoiled it to you once. I don't know if you remember that. To me or him, Zach. Ah. Oh, I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember what I did two hours ago. Why would I remember that? (laughs) Perfect. Alright, number one on my list. I was thinking, for number one, it has to be something where if, if this was spoiled, it would completely ruin the entire, um, the entire movie watching experience for the film. And my number one is a movie that is kind of impossible to describe which makes it really hard to spoil, but if you did spoil it, it would completely ruin the movie. And I'm going with Mulholland Drive. If somehow you are able to explain to someone what is going on in Mulholland Drive and ruin the journey that it takes you on, and how, and no, in no other movie have I been forced to try and piece together simply what the plot is, let alone what, what happens in the end, um, if someone ruined that for me, I it would have it would have ruined one of my favorite movies and just I I would have hated them. It, it is like I said, it's so hard to describe and it's a movie that I when I describe it to people I say you have to watch it. It's the trippiest thing you'll ever see and you're going to be obsessed with it. That's about all you can tell someone about this movie. Because if you try to ex- describe anything at all, the only way you do that is by spoiling things. Because you have to work to understand any of it. And so um, the fact that the entire movie is a spoiler in itself, uh, in de- trying to describe it, it had to be my number one on this list. So Mulholland Drive. That's an outstanding choice. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Zach, number one. But don't you feel like, in a way, though, it's kind of spoiler-proof? Because there's so much stuff that happens in that movie that even if you told someone the ending, the, the journey to get there, though, is so surprising and unpredictable that, like... It's almost like saying Inception is your number one. Like, yeah, the end of Inception is, like, shocking, but, like, you well, wouldn't ins- understand it if you hadn't seen it, you know? Inception, I thought about putting that on here, but I don't think you can spoil Inception because Inception has such an open-ended ending. I think this is... This was one that, you're right, it's kind of spoiler-proof, but if you start to give, like, if you tell someone the plot ahead of time, I think it completely ruins the the game of watching it and trying to piece the puzzle together. You're right, there's so much that goes on in it, but knowing anything going into it would make it less enjoyable to watch. I'm also going to put out there that I actually don't even remember the ending of it, but... 
The, the ending is inconsequential. It's all about what leads up to it and understanding how it all happened and what's Silencio. real and what isn't. Silencio. <laughs> no hay banda, no hay orquesta. <laughs> all right. Does it is have that... to do with the, the guy behind the, the restaurant? The, the no, movie? he has nothing to do no. with anything. <laughs> oh, he's not behind the whole thing? No. The guy with the restaurant? <laughs> the guy... Ken? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ken. Uh, all right, Zach, number one. Okay, well, uh, my number one, I almost want to say it's like a five-way tie, but I can't quite do it. Um, my number one has to be a documentary because there have been so many documentaries in my life that are extremely impactful, and I would hate to think that if someone had spoiled the ends of these documentaries, the journeys of these characters, uh, how devastating it would have made the experience of watching the movie. Um, we talked a little bit about Free Solo. Todd thinks that the ending was, you know, a fait accompli, but, uh, you know, it's, it's about the journey of getting there. So, you know, I want to put, like, Dear Zachary, possibly, which is a top ten movie for me all time. Mm. If someone had spoiled that movie, I would have that would have ended my friendship, probably, potentially. But actually, what I'm going to same with Hoop Dreams, I think. You absolutely can't get that movie spoiled at all. Neither uh, of them I've seen. Okay, well, then I'm not even going to say anything. Just don't read it. <laughs> But my number one is a movie that I know you've seen, Terry, and it's a movie that actually I technically do not know the ending of because none of us know the ending of, and that is Michael Abted's Up series, beginning with 7-Up, going all the way in iterations of 7 up to 56-Up, and we will have 63-Up, presumably, coming in a couple years. Um, this is a movie that charts the lives of 15 uh, British individuals who were born in 1956, and every year this film crew has gone back and interviewed them to kind of give an update about what their life is like and you know they're normal uh citizens and they're normal people um they do come from different racial and class backgrounds um but the movie is riveting because precisely because you have no idea what's going to come next you have no idea how uh they will change from the year 21 to year 28 and some of them go through profoundly radical transformations uh transformations that you could not possibly see coming and even the ones that don't go through complete 180s um are also fascinating in, in itself. So in a way, this had to be my number one because it's not just one spoiler that you want to avoid, but it's really 15 spoilers. Um, and, uh, you know, anyone that, that tells you what happens, say, to Neil between the years of 21 and 35, I mean, it just compl- it, it doesn't ruin the experience of the movie. I wouldn't go so far as to say what Terry said about Mulholland Drive, but um, the, the, the charm of the movie, the pleasure of the movie derives from the experience of not knowing, not predicting, not forecasting what happens to these people, just like real life. So uh, in that that sense it's unlike any other experience um in in movie history that that is a fascinating choice and i i kind of love it um i would say the the best part uh, my favorite moment in any of the movies is the last scene just the last little snippet of 56 up where you find out that yeah that tony's dog track is now the the olympic stadium that was just super cool yeah and in a way like okay in some respects you could have it spoiled for you but you know what there's 14 other people that are also still surprising too so in in some ways that movie's kind of spoiler proof too also in the sense that none of us know how this movie's going to end so we don't know including the director uh how uh this series will will end someday inevitably so it looks like i mean 63 up should be next year right because it's every seven years. Yeah, and 56 that, that, was that 2013. Right. Yeah, 
coming up soon. Most anticipated movies next year. Be on my list. There you go. Yep. Yeah, I've not seen those, but when you said documentary, I thought you were either going to say Dear Zachary or Catch Me in the Freedmans. So, well, yeah, I mean, Dear Zachary is a top ten movie all time for me. So I really thought about putting that my number one because you cannot know any, you should not know anything about that movie going in. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, there, you know, Crumb is another one that I would think Murder on a Sunday Morning. It just you you should not know at all what happens in those movies going into it. Yeah. All right, Todd, number one. All right, for my number one, I went with something that I feel like if I had known the details of, then I probably wouldn't have wanted to watch the movie at all. And so, and it's it's not a, like a, an all-time movie or anything, but I went with the end of Buried. So, Buried is a movie that is like all like super claustrophobic, and you are sort of spellbound to Ryan Reynolds and why he's buried alive with only a cell phone. But if you had known why. I don't really know that you would need to have watched the movie because I think the editing and writing are good, but I can't imagine there being any intensity if you would know eventually what happens because otherwise you're just watching a movie about a guy talking on a phone in a box and I feel like it would completely destroy the movie if if you know what happens beforehand. And I I think it's difficult to actually sit and watch anymore anyway and I actually appreciate the movie, but I'll never forget the first viewing because I had no idea what was going to happen or if there were any other characters in the movie even and i don't know that that that's the one that i feel like would just have completely changed everything if you had known something about it i've never seen barry but i've always heard good things i would yeah. i would i would agree with you todd the ending was pretty unforgettable yes that's all that's all i'll say about that all right well, let's do a let's do a few honorable mentions here. Um, I've got a few. I mean, you've got the. I, I have a couple classics that I left off because I wanted to talk about some of more my more favorite ones, like Sixth Sense. Um, I, I think I said you know, Empire Strikes Back being like the the greatest spoiler or the first spoiler of all time. I was wrong. The first spoiler of all of all time was Rosebud from Citizen Kane. Um, which I mean doesn't really spoil that much, but that that is like the first. Don't tell anybody what Rosebud is. Uh, what about I, Psycho? That's a good one too. Yeah. Um. Anyways, another one that I thought that was kind of fun was um the movie Clue. Uh. That that's if if you don't tell people how it ends or the multiple ways of how it ends that, that that's always a fun way to a fun one watching that for the first time with other people is always good and then uh the last the last thing i'm gonna say is uh for spoiler alerts the uh dennis lahane trifecta of mystic river gone baby gone and shutter island um the endings of those are pretty unforgettable and especially i would i would say really for all of them it really spoils the movie if you know how it ends um and dennis lehane kind of is the master of the twist uh so uh so yeah though those ones i mean even though you know it's dennis lehane and there's going to be a twist i don't think any of those twists maybe mystic river but gone baby gone and shutter island those twists you do not see coming at all mystic river isn't really a twist that's no. more of just but it, it's just, just devastating when you see what happens yeah yeah all right, Zach. Any honorable mentions? 
Well, I'm surprised Todd didn't mention American Vandal, which also both seasons have had some great uh, endings too. I would even maybe sure. submit that the the end of season two was maybe a little more crazy and unpredictable in season one, even though season one overall was the better season. Um, I, I did something a little different for, for my honorable mentions. I actually went with like terrible twist endings that were like so bad that I'm kind of glad they weren't spoiled for me because of their awfulness. You just have to kind of be there to experience them. So I went with like Now You See Me, which I think is one of the worst I mean, <laughs> yeah. truly abysmal twist ending. But I loved it because it wasn't spoiled for me and I could enjoy it in its awfulness. So I kind of, you'll, you'll pick up a theme here. I also went with A Cure for Wellness, which was awful. Uh, the Village, um, really any M. Night Shyamalan movie post uh, The Sixth Sense. Um, Iron Man 3, the uh, 2016 Academy Awards, Super Bowl 49, and finally, the movie that I'm surprised none of us have mentioned so far that we've mentioned, uh, at least in real life, several times, uh, Nothing But the Truth, starring Kate Beckinsale, a movie that I've never seen. Oh, oh, yes. I've, I've never seen it, but it's been spoiled for me, but I don't care that it was spoiled for me because it, it's such a great ending. I mean, it's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, that's one yeah, that if, if the ending's ending. spoiled, it completely ruins the movie. But, one but that it's I would, such a great ending. It's a terrible One ending. that I would add to your bad <laughs> twist endings, uh, The Prestige. It's like the one Christopher Nolan movie I hate, and I hate it because of what it thinks is a great twist ending, because it's a terrible twist ending, and I just, it's, no, no, hated it. Hated yep. it. Okay, Todd, honorable mention. Alright, yeah, I have the Lehane movies too, and uh, similar to your Up series, I have basically, if anything about the Before series got spoiled for me, I would I would pretty much riot. Uh, uh, and then I have the, the Death of Wallace and The Wire has got to be up there, the ending of Old Boy, the Aaron yeah, and Roy cool. reveal in Primal Fear, Ooh. and basically anything about Sleuth, because... That movie is just two people talking for the entire movie, and if you had known what was going on, then uh, it would not be a, like a, a top one hundred movie, but it is. So, are we? We're, you're, you're not talking about the remake, right? Well, no. I mean, well, it is basically just a remake. So, no, I'm talking about the original, of course. All Michael right. Caine. Michael the Kain. only the only one with credibility. True. <laughs> All right, well, let's look at Adam's list now. So our friend Adam Daly of uh, of Adam Daly Live and the Red and Brown podcast, we were going to try and get him on our podcast to do this uh, do this spoiler reveal with us, but he was not able to, uh, we were not able to get the schedules to work out. Uh, but I have his list, and uh, we're going to see how well we can predict it. So here is, here's my list of Adams, my prediction. So number five, I have Sixth Sense. Number four, Empire Strikes Back. Number three, Gone Girl. Uh, number two, Gone Baby Gone. And number one, Infinity War. Number five, I have The Dark Knight Rises. Number four, Kill Bill Volume 1. Number three, The Sixth Sense. Number two, Seven. And number one, The Usual Suspects. Kill Bill Volume 1. Great call. Great call. Alright, Todd. Alright, I have number five, uh, The Game of Thrones Red Wedding, or anything about the final season. Uh, number four, The Ending of Hard Candy. Number three, uh, The Twist and the Usual Suspects. Number two, The End of the Departed. And number one, The Twist in Seven. Okay. Adam's List. Honorable Mentions. I See Dead People, The Sixth Sense, 
which was spoiled for him. Uh, the ending of Breaking Bad and Lost, which were spoiled for him. Um, Gandalf is back somehow in the trailer for Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers. <laughs> <laughs> Should have nice. picked that one. <laughs> um, Terminator Salvation and Genesis were spoiled. Uh, spoiled their twist in the trailers. Um. Okay. Number five, The Red Wedding, Game of Thrones. Yes. Spoiled. <laughs> Spoiled for me, but out of context actually made me want to watch the show. Okay. Uh, number four, Han Solo's death in, uh, yeah. in Force Awakens. Number three, Lone Survivor. No interest to watch because the title <laughs> spoils what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's a good choice. <laughs> number two, the ending of Sleepaway Camp. I have no idea what that is. Wow. I think it's an 80s slasher movie. And then, um, number one, watching the remake of Old Boy without realizing it was a remake until after the credits hit. What does that mean? <laughs> I, I think I think it means he wanted to watch the original before the remake and got the, re- the original spoiled by watching the remake first, not realizing it was a remake. <laughs> I That's love that awesome. he's. I mean, he's talking about one of the great spoil, one of the great twist endings of all time. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the experience of not knowing that it was a remake. <laughs> the twist ending has nothing to do with it. He spoiled it himself. <laughs> uh, that that yeah, that might be the greatest spoiler of all time is not realizing that a remake is a remake until you find out it's a remake in the credits. <laughs> I got one right. I got one right. I think you're the only one that got anything. <laughs> I should have thought of that. I should have thought of the red wedding. That was spoiled for me too. Yeah, I'm not even. I, I'm not even to I that point watch watching Game of Thrones. I know everybody <laughs> knows what the red wedding is, though. That's like the least kept secret ever. You All didn't right. think of Sleepaway Camp or Lone Survivor? Uh, one of us should have had Han Solo, though. <laughs> one of us should have thought of Han Solo. Yeah. Yeah. You at least had Star Wars in there. Somewhere. I had Star Wars in there somewhere. I, I, I Lone thought... Survivor, spoiled by the title. That is awesome. <laughs> oh, that was good. All right, well, Todd extends his commanding lead and gets to pick our next topic. Uh, twelve and a half victories. Twelve and a, twelve and a half. Goodness gracious. Okay. It is time to move on to trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. I forgot about this. John Void is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And to start trivia, uh, I have a movie that I need to review. Uh, the last time we did our regular trivia. By the way, I realize I totally ruined the opportunity to give Zach something to watch. Because I won trivia last time. I won Apollo 13 trivia. And I should have given Zach something to watch. But I didn't. Now it's just me having to look like an idiot reviewing something that you guys have seen. And like I said earlier on, we were going to come back to Philip Seymour Hoffman because in the last 24 hours I've had to watch two Philip Seymour Hoffman movies to get ready for the podcast. And this one is the 2012 film The Master. Written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, this is a movie that... I don't know how, but I knew absolutely nothing about, other than 
It was Paul Thomas Anderson, and it was Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Amy Adams. That's all I knew. And so I, I was debating with myself last night as I was getting ready to watch it. Should I read like just a little bit about what this is about, or should I just go in? I went into it completely blind. I had no idea what was happening. Like the, the closest thing to a spoiler is I knew that Philip Seymour Hoffman had a mustache. That was about it. <laughs> well, I remember when the movie was coming out, it was similar to Phantom Thread, where they didn't have a title until, like, right before it was released. This was the untitled Paul Thomas Anderson Scientology Project for the longest time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't even know that. I just knew it was the master. So, uh, this movie is um, follows Joaquin Phoenix's character, whose name is Freddie Quell, uh, who is a... Um, a World War II vet uh, in the Navy that definitely has some PTSD going on and some serious issues. And um, through his kind of just meandering through life, he finds himself on a boat going out and going around the, like through the Panama Canal to get from the West Coast to the East Coast. And on that boat, he meets Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. And because uh, they're on this boat for a wedding, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is his na- character's name is Lancaster Dodd, and he is this uh, like he feels like it feels like he's like the first like self help guy ever, and he refers to himself as the master. He's he is the master, and he's he's going to help those around him, and I'm. You can correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong as I go along, because it's kind of... I was having some trouble following some of what was going on here. Um, and so he's trying to... He's trying to um, to fix Philip Seymour Hoffman. The best scene, by far, the best scene in the movie is uh, is his... Um, uh, what do they call it? His, um, his processing. Joaquin Phoenix's processing, where... Uh, where Philip Seymour Hoffman asks him just these series of questions and asks him to respond. And he asks like the same question over and over and over again to find, to get the truth out. And then the, he asks him to try and answer them without blinking. So he doesn't, so he can't be thinking about what he's actually answering. Um, Amy Adams plays his wife. Um, you find out that the, the wedding is, um, is his, uh, is Philip Seymour Hoffman's daughter getting married to Rami Malek, which is kind of a fun little, Hey, Oscar winner in in the house here, um, in just really kind of a throwaway role. One of the greatest um, casting decisions of all time of all time is casting Jesse Plemons as Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. Indeed. <laughs> that was that was ins- inspiration right there. Um, but yeah, as as it goes along, you follow Joaquin Phoenix and realize he hasn't really gotten over his issues, but he has bought in entirely to what Lancaster Dodd is, is preaching and basically becomes his closest disciple and uh, an extension of their family. Um, and, and you see as it kind of goes along how he starts to realize, Hoffman's character starts to realize that he might kind of be a fraud in what he's doing here, but he doesn't really want to admit it. And uh, I, I don't know. It was, it, was a, it was an interesting watch. Um, I would compare it kind of in a similar way to some of Paul Thomas Anderson's other more recent films, something like There Will Be Blood or Phantom Thread, um, where he designs these incredible characters 
and then designs this movie around not much of a plot, but really just finding scenarios for the characters to live and to experience and to show who they are and really creating this actor showcase. Um, I, I, as I was watching, I was thinking Paul Thomas Anderson in a lot of ways is like the, is like a version of the Coen brothers where he creates these unforgettable characters, but in, in terms of where he's different than the Coens, the Coens create this quirky narrative that the characters live in. Paul Thomas Anderson isn't quirky at all and also doesn't really have the narrative skills of the Coen brothers, but just kind of creates these scenarios that let them show who they are. Um, and I think this movie is a perfect example of that. I'm giving it, I'm giving it three stars for right now. I mean, it's a movie I'm kind of struggling to understand what to do with, um, which honestly is what I notice about several of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. I get to the end of it and I'm like, okay, what am, what am I supposed to do with that? And the master was no different, so I'm giving it three stars for now. If I if I get around to watching it again, that might change, but um, that's where I'm at. Todd, I know you just watched it recently because it had been a while, right? Yeah, I watched it yesterday, uh, and it's funny you mentioned the Coens because I feel like uh, I noticed the at Lancaster's office at the end. I feel like it's the exact same set as like uh, Paul Newman's office in uh, in uh, the Hudsucker Proxy. Oh, that's interesting. I also I felt like, like the, the front the porch. Room. I also felt like the front porch that of the the girl's house that he goes to see and he talks to the mom. I I felt like that it was like the exact same shots as Miles walking up to sideways to at the end. It, it felt like the that. same porch. Yeah, I mean, I I really love that movie. I I I don't know. I it's yeah, it's hard to put into words because I. And it is a very strange movie. It doesn't really feel like the other Paul Thomas Anderson movies. I feel like, but I, I feel I think the processing scene is the best acted scene of the last like twenty years. Like that, like that scene is unbelievable. Yeah, and uh, it still it still holds up. I, I've watched that just on YouTube just because I'm like, man, that that is what acting really is right there. And I always thought it interesting. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman almost won the Oscar for it. It was kind of a surprise that he lost to Christoph Waltz for Django Unchained. Um. But I thought Joaquin Phoenix was the was the star of the movie. He was incredible in what he did, and it's only a matter of time before he finally gets his Oscar. Yeah, should have he should have won for it, and I feel like that's Philip Seymour Hoffman's like second best performance. It's just acting at its finest. I, I don't know about Amy Adams. I mean, she's she's really good. She's sort of like pulling the strings in, in a lot of ways in the movie. But yeah. It really is a movie about its performances, like I guess, and and how it's shot, and the score is bizarre and awesome zach what do you think of the master well i haven't seen it since it first came out uh but i was never a huge fan of the movie um but you know i i would certainly be open to watching it again because it was uh such a strange sort of surreal experience um you're right about the performances they're 
great. Uh, I thought, even though I didn't like the movie much, uh, I thought Philip Seymour Hoffman, he would have gotten my vote if I had had a vote at the 2012 Oscars, and Joaquin Phoenix is amazing. My problem with the movie, if I remember correctly, is that it's way too long, it's way too pretentious, it believes that it's a great movie. Whereas, you look at something like Inherent Vice, which is Anderson's follow-up with Joaquin Phoenix, and that's just a much more fun movie to watch, even though in many ways I think it has similar kind of overtones about anxieties in post, post-World War II America, and um, sort of a satirical bent to it. Um, whereas The Master is not really fun to watch. Individual segments of it are fun to watch, and there's some good scenes, and I really like the opening 15 minutes. But then there's scenes like at the end when he's on his motorcycle. I just remember that. It like, feels like a 20-minute long sequence when he's on the motorcycle. Um, but it, I, from what I remember, it just felt like it was Anderson saying, this is my great movie. Uh, give me an Oscar. And I, that's sometimes I've seen a, been, a, been part of his work, um, but it just wasn't fun to watch. Yeah, I, you guys have, have mentioned in the past that I, I'm not a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, which isn't the case. However, I'm realizing that his earlier work I really enjoy more um, because I'm I'm more of a narrative person. And really over, over the last, what, 10 years of Paul Thomas Anderson, he's really become this this guy who makes incredible movies as actor showcases like i said there will be blood the master uh phantom thread they're actor showcases and with not very much story to be told and uh inherent vice is not an actor showcase you will and see that's one i haven't seen i haven't seen inherent vice yet that's i think that's a one pta movie i haven't seen and so it's only um, eight yeah um and so it once i get that one then i can really I, I can really see but uh but yeah this one i mean it was all right but i i had a similar feeling at the end of there will be blood at the end of uh, there will be blood is slightly different because of how just amazing some of that is but um especially phantom thread where i got to the end i'm like i really don't know what i'm supposed to do with this and that's how i felt with the master so there you go all right all right, so Todd, I believe you are leading us in uh, in trivia this time, as uh, Zach and I are, are facing off here. Yeah, it shouldn't be too difficult for you guys, because it is top of mind at, at the moment. So we are doing some Philip Seymour Hoffman trivia. Um, so uh, I have uh, four categories, I believe, yes. Yeah, and uh, our first category... Is go and when you get eliminated from the category, the other person keep going. You get a point for every one you get right. Uh, our first category is the top fifteen ranked movies on IMDb with Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. So that is movies with a seven point four or more. So top fifteen out of his fifty two credited films. And since Terry had to watch a movie this time he will get the choice going first or second I will go first okay uh Capote Capote is number 15 Hulk (laughs) (laughs) Zach Boogie Nights Boogie Nights is number 5 uh, Magnolia. Magnolia is number four. The Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski is number one. Almost Famous. Almost Famous is number six. 
Uh, Doubt? Doubt is number 11. No, 12. Yeah, 12. Um... It's not good that I'm already losing steam on this. Uh, oh, which one? I'm going to say Son of a Woman. Son of a Woman is number three. Uh, before the Devil Knows You're Dead. That is not on the list. How is that not on the list? I had, yeah, That's I had ridiculous. a feeling that wasn't going to be on the list. People don't like that movie like I do. Oh, come on. It got great reviews. Not, in, yeah, I guess. IMDb, though. IMDb is stupid. Yeah. All right. So I get to keep going if I can? Yeah. So let me You, are, you have a one-point lead at the moment. Um, <sighs> there are eight other movies that you can say. Mission Impossible 3. That is not correct. Yeah. How about Twister? (laughs) If that's there, and before the devil knows your dead isn't, that's an insult. No, it's not. Okay, should I say the rest of the list? Do you want me to keep keep it in a mystery because we have other categories? Um... No, just tell Give us, us the list. Give us okay. The list. Okay. Number two is the only other top two fifty movie, and that is his brilliant animated movie, Mary and Max. And wow. then he's you got uh, number seven is Happiness. Number eight, Twenty Fifth Hour. Number nine, Moneyball. Number ten, Catching Fire. Number eleven, Synecdoche, New York. Number oh, thirteen, Talent, Mr. Ripley. Number fourteen, Pirate Radio. Wow. Okay, so now we are going with the bottom 10 movies on Rotten Tomatoes, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. So that is uh, 52% or less. And Zach gets to go first on this one. Along Came Polly. That is his third worst. Yes! Get one. This is a tough list. Yeah, it is. Um... Can can you give us all right? Are we do what did you say? Top ten, top fifteen, top ten. So or so bottom ten. Yeah, bottom. Yeah, fifty two percent or worse on Rotten Tomatoes. Can you give us how many movies he was in? I, I fit, he was in fifty two movies overall. Okay, okay, okay. I told you that before. All right, uh, I'm gonna go. Oh. Mocking Jay Part Two. That is not on the list. <laughs> it is currently four to four. Zach can pick up more points if he can. Uh, Twister. Twister is not one of them. Is Flawless one of them? I was going to say that. Yes, Flawless of is course, one of one them. Or the other. That oh, is his eighth worst. Those are the only three that I could come up with. His worst is some movie called My Boyfriend's Back. Uh, his second worst is Patch Adams. Oh. Which I've never seen. That was the other one I was thinking about. God, he was in that. Uh, then he's got a movie called Lullaby, The Getaway, Salinger, God's Pocket, which was his last movie, uh, Flawless, My New Gun, and Strangers with Candy, apparently he was in. I do not remember him in that movie. That was an impossible list, Todd. 
Well, Flat we, out you just looked at it. You just looked at his filmography. You were reading it earlier, Terry. <laughs> yeah, that was like the that yeah. Okay, so we will go you with were, his top. You, you watched Flawless. How could you? Not, and, and we even <laughs> talked about Crix didn't like it. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I know. Okay, top ten on Rotten Tomatoes, eighty-eight percent or higher. Top ten on Rotten Tomatoes. Now that's what we're doing. Yeah. Oh, so it's top movies, but no longer IMDb. This is the critics that say it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. And Terry gets to go first. Capote. Capote is number five. And this is I top top what? This is top ten. Top ten. Okay. This is going to be a similar list, I think. Uh, Before the devil knows you're dead. Come on, that critics. That is number nine. Yeah. Good call. Magnolia. Magnolia is not correct. What? The critics didn't like Magnolia. Not that much. Not eighty-eight percent. Oh, I guess not. Okay, Zach. Uh, Boogie Nights. He's gonna kill me now. Boogie Nights is number three. Uh, By the way, Magnolia had an eighty-three percent. Gosh. Doubt. Doubt is not correct. What? So the score is six to five. Uh, The ones you did not get were number one, Mary and Max. Number two, Moneyball. Uh, Number four, Nobody's Fool. Number six. Uh, Almost Famous, number 7, Catching Fire, number 8, The Savages, and number 10, Scent of a Woman. I would have missed those. That's a, t- that's a tough list. And right. now, wrapping it up, we will go with the uh, the top 10 box office for Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh. 81 million or more at the box office. And Zach gets to start us out, and he is leading by one. Catching Fire Part 1. Catching Fire, there is only part one part, and that oh. is number one. <laughs> <laughs> how about how about Mockingjay Part 1? Mockingjay Part 1 is number three. Uh, Mockingjay Part 2? Mockingjay Part 2 is number two. Well, now that we've gotten that out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. What was the number? 81 million. Top 81 10. 81 million. Okay. Uh, oh, Mission Impossible 3. That is number 6. Eight to seven, Zach. Twister. Twister is number 4. Let's see here. Which one do I want to go with? Um, five. Along came Polly. That's number nine. Okay. Uh, almost famous. And is not correct. Terry can tie it up with one more answer and win it with two more answers. There are four more possibilities. Moneyball. Moneyball is not correct. Gosh. Zach takes it nine to eight. Can I guess one more? Patch sure. Adams. That was my Yeah, that's guess. number five. That was yeah, my see, uh, One or the other. Then uh, you got number seven, uh, Cold Mountain. Uh, oh, number gosh. eight, Red Dragon. 
And number 10, the talented Mr. Ripley. All somehow made more money than Moneyball. And Almost Famous. And Capote. And Big Lebowski. <laughs> and people didn't like Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which is terrible. <laughs> or Doubt. Yeah. Shameful. Gosh. All right. So, Zach is to pick a movie for one of us to watch. Ooh, this will be fun. Okay, let's wrap this up. It is uh, time for quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. The last thing we do on every podcast, we give uh, one quote uh, for uh, for the day to leave you with. Uh, Zach, I'm going to start off with you since you since you won everything. Go ahead. So, um, I, my quote comes from uh, Free Solo, which is a movie that Todd missed the boat on. It's one of the great movies, I think, of the 2010s. In fact, it, it, at the end of this year, when we make our top of the 2010s, it may make an appearance on my top 10. Um, it's Alex Honnold saying, my friends are like, oh, that'd be terrible. But if I killed myself in an accident, they'd be like, oh, that was too bad. But life goes on, you know, like, they'll be fine. I mean, and I've had this problem with girls a lot, you know, they're like, oh, I really care about you. I'm like, no, you don't. Like, if I perish, it doesn't really matter. Like, you'll find someone else. Like, that's not that's not that big a deal. And that's true about this podcast, because does anyone really care or listen if we perish? If we perish. That's deep. That's deep. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go next. My, uh, my quote, uh, thinking about the category for power rankings and spoiler alerts, I'm going to go with one of the worst uh, spoilers of all time that was uh, that was completely useless and was spoiled in a trailer. Uh, this is for uh, our favorite trailer of all time, the 2008 classic Vantage Point. Mm-hmm. Um, in that movie, you have, uh, you have William Hurt as President Ashton who is standing in his hotel room watching the television where he was just assassinated. And his aide goes, You can't give the order. You've been shot. We risk telling the whole world you weren't there. And he goes, We weren't there. Spoiler. Rewind that. (laughs) I'm in pursuit of a suspect. See, there's so many spoilers that are given away in a movie nobody cares about. All right. Todd, what is your quote? All right. Uh, Mine comes from Dexter, and that is something that definitely describes this podcast. (laughs) Sometimes it's reassuring to know that I'm not the only one pretending to be normal. I feel like that's how I feel like talking to you guys all the time. That's a good one. I think what isn't normal is not realizing that Old Boy was a remake and then (laughs) thinking that that was the spoiler and not the spoiler in Old Boy. That's not normal. That's got to be the best one ever. The best moment ever is watching a movie and then at the end going, wait a second, rewind that. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, uh, we bring this podcast to a close. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We... we win an extra week between having podcasts here however we're going to make up with that uh we're going to be coming out with another one next weekend as we'll be talking about avengers endgame which will just come out 
and we'll be doing our next favorite feature deep dive into Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> Can't get enough of him. No, no. Or Paul Thomas Anderson because we're going to be talking Boogie Nights. So, uh, if you uh, if you're listening and if you want uh, if you haven't seen that, watch it before next week so you can listen to our podcast and hear all about Boogie Nights. Uh, but again, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. And until we catch you next time, have fun watching movies. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.